You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Jens, good to see you. Good to get you on Real Vision. Thank you very much for inviting me. We haven't spoken for a while. No, I know. Look, just to give people a background about yourself, a little bit career background and what you do now. Yeah. Uh, so I had a, a, a long career, Goldman, Bridgewater Associates, Namora, and then uh, five years ago, I started Exante Data. And um, it's ev- been evolving. There's been a few things go- going on over the last, uh, uh, certainly the last 14 months. So um Initially, we were very focused on advising uh, CIOs on, on broad macro strategy. And then we've sort of been building more and more of a data platform. Uh, capital flows is our specialty. So we have very comprehensive track of global capital flows. And then in January 2020, we sort of pivoted a bit to essentially do COVID forecasting. So we had uh, some months where there was an intense focus on that. There still is intense focus on it. Um, and uh, yeah, we, we spent a lot of energy on that. And uh, yeah, it was very helpful last year. And I think, uh, I think clients appreciated that. So we could definitely see that there were clients popping up that we didn't know existed that were interested in COVID forecasting. Um, and now obviously it's a little bit different this year, but still big, big macro questions around COVID with, okay, how this vaccine's gonna handle the new strains, like sort of big questions that are actually gonna uh, matter for markets that are different from what investors have, have normally been thinking about. Yeah, what I'd love to do today is kind of pick your brains on what is going on and how you see this play out. Um, because, you know, we're un- in unprecedented kind of times with unprecedented stimuli. We've got all sorts of stuff going on. We've got virus mutations, variations. We've got, there's a lot to digest. So I don't know how where you want to start, but... What do you think is going on right now? Where where are we? Well, so uh, like uh, we we both use Twitter, you and I, right? And uh, and one of the things you can do on Twitter is you can kind of make the same point repeatedly <laughs> because uh, it disappears after a few minutes, right? And and one of the one of the things that you can definitely uh, point out repeatedly is that just it's just very hard to find any historical examples of a cycle that looks like this one. Like we can obviously go back uh, to, to the, the previous big pandemics and think about how they played out, but the policy responses were totally different. The vaccines were not available, right? Uh, so I just tweeted out today, just to give one example, right? If you look at the job postings in the United States, there are a lot of states now that have more job postings, which is a very early indicator of the labor market uh, than before the pandemic. Like so. Uh, it's a cycle that's gonna like you know we've talked about this v-shape idea right but it's not so much about the specific shape of the v it's really about how long it's gonna go as well right and uh, certainly on the stimulus front in the u.s like we're just talking about totally unprecedented numbers even the numbers we've already achieved are unprecedented at least all the way back to the second world war 
but we already talk about the next round, right? We, we don't, we're just getting the, the, the last round signed and we're already on to the next one. And um, yeah, when you think about the US, I think really uh, the Democratic Party has been through a sort of historical reassessment where uh, they feel like they essentially failed after the global financial crisis in terms of getting enough stimulus online and they were punished in the elections uh, subsequently. Uh, and uh, they really uh, yeah, want to learn from that lesson. And the lesson is go very aggressive. And we've seen it already, right? Doesn't matter whether they have 50 votes or, uh, or however. I mean, if we can get it done, they want to get it done. And it's going to be the same with, same with the infrastructure. So we're going to get unprecedented stimulus. Uh, we're going to get a global recovery. It's not going to be like, oh, okay, now it's Q2 and we're going to have global recovery everywhere. But if we think about this year as a whole, we are going to have global recovery because eventually the vaccine rollout will hit most of the world, right? So we can see very clearly that the U.S. is ahead now. It's it's very impressive role. Like, so m- most of my staff is in, in the U.S., right? And we've been doing COVID forecasts and vaccine tracking aggressively, right? And in January, we started to do our sort of herd immunity forecast. And we had essentially three scenarios, optimistic, medium, and pessimistic for the U.S., right? And to, just to be totally honest, we, we are better than the most optimistic. Uh, so it's gone very fast in the U.S., in my company, everybody has either been vaccinated or in the last few weeks, they booked their appointment, right? So everybody kind of knows their own timetable. And at the moment, there's a lot of pessimism about Europe and understandably so we've had a slow rollout. But if you look at the supply numbers, the supply numbers are just totally different for Q2 than they were in Q1. Even without the AstraZeneca product in Europe, we're going to have a dramatic ramp up. So that means that Europe is going to be where the US is now with a lag, but it's not going to be many months lag. It's going to be a couple of months. So the big economies around the world is going to get to where the US is pretty soon. So it's going to be global. There's some question marks around EM in the sense that uh, they don't have access to the the most effective vaccines. We just don't know quite... um, yet uh, whether the, the Chinese products and the Russian product is effective towards the new variants. So and we're seeing stuff like India with a resurgence in the virus. It just, you know, feels like if Europe is slow, EM is understandably slower. Yeah, no, absolutely. So you have big waves now, Turkey, India, Brazil, right? So it's not over. But if we think about this year as a whole, I think the, the game-changing thing will be once the U.S. is mostly fully vaccinated, which will be May, June, then all the production we have in the U.S. can start to be redirected everywhere. So like at the moment, we essentially have export bans, right? So all the production that's happening in the U.S. is being used only in the U.S. No export pretty much whatsoever. And that's going to change. Like for, from one day to the other, it's going to be, okay, we're mostly done in the United States and all that production can be exported. And uh, that's going to be a game-changing situation for the U.S. And then a couple of months later, the EU is going to be done and they can export theirs, right? So it's, it's going to be not like, it's not going to be a gradual process. It's going to be, there's going to be a couple of months where we go from very little supply in EM to actually pretty dramatic supply in EM. And that's going to be later than what we uh, have uh, in terms of the potential for reopening in the U.S. and the EU, 
uh, but it's still going to happen this year uh, or no later this year. So thinking through what you're talking about is the US suddenly basically comes online to the world market, followed by the EU, followed by EM. There's a flooding of product that suddenly comes in. It reduces the supply constraints that have been bugging the markets. So does that put a cap on the reflationary story? Where do you stand with the reflation story? I mean, obviously, the short term, there's reflationary pressures and the year on year comparisons are going to be clear. But I'm thinking kind of H2 onwards. How does this play out? So I think what's new in this cycle is just the magnitude of the fiscal stimulus, right? So um, we can all analyze the base effects. We know how oil kind of moves into the CPI numbers and so forth. Those are the easy parts. Uh, but I think uh, the real tricky part and, and the part that the market really does not have much experience in dealing with is the persistency issue. If you're going to have a situation where uh, essentially uh, uh, the fiscal stimulus could be a very prolonged process that is impacting uh, the um, uh, overall demand in the economy for a multi-year period, that is a totally different setup. So you and, see a multi-year set of stimulus packages, you think? Yeah, so obviously to make a confident forecast, we need to know what happens in the elections as well, right? So, but at least for 21 and 22, uh, it's a situation where I think we can be very confident that the fiscal stimulus is going to be very, very aggressive in the US. In, in Europe, it's clearly different, but it's more aggressive than in the past, right? So in Europe, we always used to have, okay, uh, when you have an acute, acute crisis, you do some stimulus. Then and as soon as things look a bit better, you start to withdraw it. And that, I think, is different. Like the, the Maastricht, the infamous Maastricht Treaty is effectively disabled. It's disabled. You don't have to follow the 3% deficit rule and so forth. And it's disabled. It was, was disabled last year. It is disabled this year. It will be mostly disabled next year, right? So that is going to allow more persistency in Europe. It's not going to be as forceful as what we have in the US, but it's still going to be uh, a more supportive fiscal policy for a longer period of time. So that, that's a kind of variable that's different. And uh, then the other thing that's totally different is that a, a lot of the monetary policy, um, the different monetary policy frameworks that are in play around the world are, are being tweaked. And well, perhaps tweaked is not the, uh, the right word. In the US, uh, essentially, you've gone from uh, a framework where you say, okay, you try to forecast, and then based on your forecast, you set policy in a preemptive way, right? The but the average inflation targeting has now been coupled with an interpretation of what is correct policy that it means that we have to have realized inflation, right? So that is a pretty big deal. Like, I think the market is really trying to figure out, okay, how is the Fed really going to operate that? But... If you think about where inflation has been and what average inflation target if effectively means, right? We have been for a multi-year period kind of averaging one and a half percent inflation versus the communicated 2%, right? So if you just spell that out in very simple math, it would suggest that we should be kind of aiming for two and a half for a period, right? And to get to two and a half, it, it really entails a pretty different cycle, right? Because it, it could be an additional couple of years before tightening will come into play. And that was the whole purpose of that policy that you would implicitly have that forward guidance. I think one very big question from a macro perspective this year, next year is, is this going to be kind of adopted globally? 
uh, or are we going to have a differentiation where there's going to be Fed-like central banks that are saying, okay, we don't want to do anything preemptive anymore. We want to wait until the inflation is, is here, and perhaps we want to wait until there's more inflation than our old target actually justified because the average inflation target entails this overshoot. How, how much is that going to spread around the world, right? It, it's going to vary by, by central banks. And this could be really important for the dollar as well. Because if you have this in a situation where there's an asymmetry, where the Fed is the most aggressive in terms of allowing overshoot and inflation, maybe even encouraging the overshoot, and then you have a bunch of central banks around the world that are perhaps more traditional, okay, they're going to be preemptive. That could be a very negative scenario for the dollar. But if you look around the world, it looks like there's average inflation target in the US, and then you have sort of light versions of the same sort of sneaking into policy in many other jurisdictions. So whether it's light or not light or not at all, is going to be really important for, for currency markets, I think. One of the things I, when I'm thinking through this, I'm not sure that they can generate persistent inflation. Yes, you, you get some from fiscal stimulus, but even then, it tends to be passing. And we've seen that in Japan over the years, or even in the, the, the last Trump package that went through. It didn't last very long. Um, and this may look different. But one of the things I'm, I'm worried about is the excess capacity in the kind of services economy. So I'm not sure whether retail workers will ever go back to a job because of the structural shifts. I mean, I grew up in the UK and in the late 70s, when I was still a kid, late 70s, 80, 81, 82, we lost the shipbuilding, the steel, the car industry, and the coal industry all at the same time. And those jobs never came back. Yeah. Um, and I'm worried that, I mean, almost everybody is a reflationist. Almost everybody thinks inflation's going higher. But I look at the economy and think, I'm not sure it's going to get to full capacity enough to generate meaningful inflation. And how do you raise wages? So I think in relation to markets, uh, it's a lot to do with the tail risks, uh, I think. So early this year, we had a situation where we essentially had like a multi, multi-decade bull run in, in bond markets, uh, and really since the 80s. And it kind of kept going pretty much longer than anybody thought, right? Because initially we thought, okay, bond yields can get to zero, but that has to be the bottom, right? And then we learned that a lot of places they could do negative interest rates and we got another leg. And then we had uh, the biggest economic shock in the history of the world, some people say, this, this COVID uh, crisis. And uh, like, to be honest, when we recommended interest rate trades last year, like we did literally looked, okay, who has space to cut? everybody's going to go to zero or whatever their lower bound is and just literally pick those. Curves. It was a very easy trade last year, wasn't it? And they all went to whatever their lower bound was. The only question was who's going to go negative and who's not going to go negative. But we totally got all the monetary policy space maxed out. You can have a discussion about the QE, but certainly on the rate policy front. So, so the bond rally went so far that it, it really was incredibly asymmetric. So if you just put some probability it's possible that fiscal policy is now going to be persistent in a way where you can imagine that there'll be some inflation coming out of it 
then just based on that tail risk, it was just too risky to own the bonds at the levels we had last year. So I think that that was the easy part of the reflation kind of debate. Yeah. Now it's about, are we actually going to get it? And we can even see it in the market, right? Because uh, the 10-year in the US has started to consolidate a little bit after having a very nasty uh, uh, first quarter. And I think, I think, frankly speaking, the most important data uh, will be the inflation prints now. I think we all know that growth is going to be very, very strong in the US. We can discuss whether it's going to be 6%, 7%, 8% or something bigger, but it's going to be a big number. Uh, and uh, the reopening is going to be successful. Uh, there's going to be dramatic job growth in restaurants and so forth. So that that is relatively easy to forecast. The tricky bit is, is uh, okay, how much realized inflation we're going to get. Uh, so I think it's certainly going to take time. So we're going to have the base effects kicking in, but whether there's going to be any really sort of underlying inflation pressure, that's going to be a debate that I'm really sorry, bro, but we're not going to resolve it on this call. It's no. going to be with us do, at the end of we, the year. Yeah, when do we think we can find it? Because the numbers are going to be so screwy because of the base effects. When do we think we'll actually know the answer to this market conundrum? You know, is it, you know, are we going to generate persistent inflation or not? Is that this time next year? Is it is it Q4? I mean, when, when, when do we actually get a look at this really? Yeah, I don't, I, I don't think it will be a resolved debate this year because the base effects are going to be so extreme. The job growth is going to be so extreme, right? So it's really when you get into a more stable phase of growth, like once everybody has come back to the restaurants and all the other sectors that have been evaporated, and then you have a more normal pace of growth that is going to be driven by the stimulus still, the persistent stimulus. That's, I think, when you're going to find out, okay, once the, the shutdown sectors have been reopened, once those jobs have come back and we generate a, a strong pace of, of job growth beyond that, is it going to generate any wage inflation? And I think, I think given how aggressive the fiscal stimulus is, I, my view is that there's a chance. I, I, would, I think there's some other big global forces that are, that are worth uh, pointing out, like there's two. Uh, so in terms of the sort of the big deflationary forces we've had globally, there was like the huge increase in the Chinese labor force that is behind us. So that's one deflationary force that's behind us. Another, another force that I think is very unpredictable, but could, could, but could be a very forceful one, is essentially the whole global warming and environmental a shift that is happening, right? Uh, really, if you think about it, it is one that is going to necessitate a different type of investment. Uh, it's almost like if you look at big inflationary periods in the past, they were uh, post-war periods, right, where you needed to rebuild infrastructure. If you think about the infrastructure we have as an obsolete infrastructure that need to be totally refurbished, you can see some inflationary effects coming out of that. Uh, both from the demand side, because we need to really get aggressive in terms of putting that capital to work the right places, but there could also be supply effects because, okay, it's harder to produce food and so forth. So I think that's something that could feed into the equation as well. Uh, but I think from an investment perspective, the level of yields <laughs> is, is in a way uh, the, the dominant variable. And, and that's just like we speak to institutional investors uh, all the time, right? That's what we do for a living. And there's just a lot of asset managers that have had tons of fixed income exposures in their portfolio historically. 
it's been their main business and and, and the debate is literally okay why would we own any bonds it's it's so dramatic and it's spilling into everything it's spilling into real estate it's spilling into certain equities it's spilling into crypto and so forth it's like has broad implications and that's not a shift that is happening from one quarter to the other you have huge pools of money right that have been invested a certain way for again decades and that shift is happening some investors are fast some are very very slow so that's going to be a multi-year process i think you can even see it around this um the quarter end we just had here q1 was interesting right because for the first time in a while you had a sell-off in bonds and um the sort of uh models around okay are people going to rebalance their portfolios buy some more bonds into quarter ends because the valuation effect had gone the other direction really that rebalance was was really not there and i think the simple explanation is that people are in the middle of a structural shift out of bonds right so even if their allocation has gone down there's not really any big structural need to increase it you're a podcast listener and this is a podcast ad Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. I mean, I've talked about this and I call it the, and we'll come on to currencies in a bit, I call it the death of kind of G7 macro. The fact that I, I don't believe that we will. Even if we generate inflation, that we will generate higher bond yields because the Federal Reserve will stop it, you know, whether we get yield curve control. Much like we've seen in Japan, we're now seeing in Australia. And that shift off the balance sheet, once the Japanese lifers and everybody else realized that the bond market was dead money, they basically slowly over time transferred it to the balance sheet of the BOJ. I kind of feel like that same process is going to take place here, however way it plays out. Because if you get economic weakness, the Fed buy, buy the bonds. If you get economic strength, the Fed buy bonds. I think that the debate is certainly relevant and it's also tied into the debt sustainability dynamic, right? We have now, like what is really ironic about the situation we have is that uh, we have so much issues, right? So there's, for the first time in, in, in a long time, I would say, okay, it's actually worth focusing on issuance. Historically, if you try to predict yields with, with issuance, it's, it's not like a good strategy. But now the issuance is so extreme and it's at, in into a booming economy that uh, those supply effects, I think, could be relevant for trading bonds as well. But uh, that's sort of a more tactical consideration. I think your point is still very valid that can the central banks really allow these yields to move significantly, right? Because the debt levels are now so elevated that it could cause major, major problems. And, and you're already seeing it, seeing it around the world. Like you can uh, look at Brazil. Uh, so Brazil is a, one of the most important emerging market economies. Uh, they have uh, just an explosion in, in public debt on balance sheet or off balance sheet. And the central bank has had, we used to have, 13% interest rate in Brazil, right? And we got to two, like totally extraordinary interest rate situation. And then normally uh, when you have recovery, they'll be very aggressive to get rates up. And now, now it's a big deal that they're hiking rates by 75 basis points, right? But yields are still incredibly low. And, and people are very uncomfortable with having a long-term 
constructive view on the currency in that country because they worry that the central bank will not be able to set rates in a, in a way that's sensible because it will bankrupt the government. So that's a consideration that, that is relevant uh, in a number of countries because we have so much debt. And it certainly means that even if the Fed is not a big fan of yield curve control, it's also hard to see a situation where they're just going to let interest rates really move up in, a, in an aggressive Yeah, because if you put 10-year yields at 3%, let's say nominal yields, I mean, that's enough to slow everything down again. Yep. You know, that, that level of tightening is too much for the economy to take. That's a very small band. <laughs> you know, we've lived through worlds where, you know, bond yields through the cycle, you know, are 500 basis points. And now you've got yields through the cycle at 250 basis points is, is too much for the economy to handle. Yeah. Uh, it's pretty extraordinary. I kind of think yield curve control is kind of on the table at anything over two and a quarter. I think like the Fed is, is going to look at what's going on in the economy, right? And they're going to look at the rate sensitive sectors and they're going to see is there any problem. Right now, what has happened is that interest rates came from an incredibly low level along the whole curve and we kind of normalized a bit. I don't think they're concerned about that. But if we have another leg high in rates and you can start to see mortgage rates move, the housing market be affected, it would be totally different from the, the move we've had now. Yeah. And, and, and to be honest, you can see already some of the indicators in the housing market, mortgage approvals and so forth, are already starting to respond, not in any kind of disturbing way, but there's a limit to how much mortgage rates can go up before the housing market will respond to. Let's talk a bit about the stimulus package, not the one that's coming, that's in play now, but the next one or two that are coming, right? This is potentially a new Green Deal style package. You've talked about infrastructure. It's probably more tech heavy than it is bridges and roads, but who knows? What do you think this the package is going to look like? Because that's going to give us opportunities to invest because I think there's a global move towards similar kind of stuff. What are you, how are you thinking through this? Yeah, um, it's, we can certainly see that it does matter uh, who is in government in the US. It's, it's, uh, it's understandable that the markets have had big responses to these election results, both in November and, and, and January, because it does make a big difference. And, um, and I think you're also right that it can certainly be global in the sense that uh, the, the push for, for green investment is, is uh, arguably uh, more supported by the general public in Europe than it is in the US. So whatever's happening in the US now is getting a lot of airtime, but probably something similar can happen in, the, in, in, in Europe. So um, that has to do with, with this topic of, okay, are we going to revamp our infrastructure in a way that's also going to have macro implications? I think the numbers are big enough uh, that it can. I think also in terms of um, sort of market dynamics, markets are very good at uh, handling repeated events, right? So are you going to beat the market by trading the payrolls uh, release better than the robots? It's not an easy game, right? But these big macro policy announcements uh, that uh, are coming out are, is not something that the market has learned from the past, right? It's a one-off. Yeah. And I, I think it, it tends to play out in markets over a more drawn-out period of time. And I think we're in the process of, of pricing this. I think the one uh, aspect of this package that um, uh, we're getting a lot of questions from our clients around now is actually the financing, right? Because it's not going to be deficit financing um, alone. That's going to be 
a tax element to it. And um, there's going to be some, uh, uh, there's going to be a debate about corporate tax increases. And then we should think about which sectors are really going to impact it by that. Uh, so I think that the sectors that are going to be in focus that have very low effective tax rates now, like pharma and tech, uh, very likely are going to see some impact. I don't think the market is, is, is pricing that full yet. And then, um, then there's some big new stuff going on. This idea that you can actually potentially coordinate global corporate tax uh, rates. Uh, so I'm not going to make a call here today. Okay, that's going to happen in the next few months. But being talked about. It, it's, it's something that would have seemed like literally zero probability if you had asked uh, anybody in, uh, at the end of the year. And now it's much, much harder to dismiss it. One reason I think it's hard to dismiss it is that there's actually a lot of big countries that will be quite supportive of the idea. And then there's going to be some smaller countries that, uh, for whom it was going to be a huge problem, right? Um, so I think that's something to, to think about. Uh, that, that could actually be really, it could be really important for sort of fiscal soundness, right? Because the rate to the race to the bottom in terms of global corporate tax rates has been a major drag on fiscal performance. Uh, so, and I think also from an academic perspective, if you look at academic literature, it's actually not a crazy idea to tax profits. Uh, it tends to be uh, less damaging to growth than many other uh, forms of taxation. So I think that is something that could matter for the global growth narrative for fiscal soundness and so forth. So I think that's something I would watch very close to it's a little bit too early to make a big call that it's actually going to happen but we would argue it's gone from like zero percent probability to maybe 15 percent now yeah because i mean it's been very interesting to follow the narrative out of the imf mm -hmm. um and the bis there's been this talk of the new Bretton woods and then interesting enough we saw yellen was it this week last week this week i think mentioning the new Bretton woods and this corporate tax rate it feels like there is a propensity to do something massive amongst the G10, G20, G7, whoever it is. And I have a feeling that maybe there's something to do with currencies as well, just some general stability agreement, you know, something that feels more meaningful. Um, I don't know, what, do, what are you thinking about this? Because we're hearing a lot of drumbeats, but... Do you think they can that they will do something big, even bigger than kind of trying to neutralize global tax rates at corporate level? Well, I think I think there's maybe three dimensions that are worth touching on. So the, I think the global tax coordination is actually a very big deal, right? Because it could actually be a big component of government revenue globally. Uh, so I think that's a big thing. Uh, and clearly, a lot of these things come out of, of the fact that the Biden administration is, is really making an aggressive effort to reaching out to all the allies, right? And these things cannot happen without having, having uh, yeah, global coordination. And, uh, and the other aspect of that is the China policy, right? If there is a US, Europe, and a broader sort of Western country alliance that can uh, have a more united front against China, that could be really important in, in relation to Taiwan and so forth. So that is an important issue as well. On the currency front, um, I'm a little bit more skeptical. As you know, I spent a bit of time thinking about currencies. Um, I think Yellen is, is a 
kind of a free float uh, kind of um, philosophy on currencies. I don't think she believes that the dollar should be controlled. Uh, I think also the levels that we are seeing in currency markets is not something that at the moment is causing a great deal of concern, like currency volatility is fairly subdued. Uh, the levels we're seeing are not extreme really in any crosses, right? So there's no major catalyst. That, that would more come into play if there was one of the major crosses that were really knocking on the door of a sort of historical breakout, and that's not what we're seeing yet. So I think, I think the coordination, whatever you call it, Bretton Woods, uh, I think uh, there's also digital tax is also a pretty big deal, right? So much of our economy now is in the digital space. Uh, and if you can find a, a different way to tax that, that uh, is a big priority. And there's some movement on that front. Uh, and that could certainly be important from a government perspective, but also from an equity market perspective, those taxes actually get ramped up. Yeah, and I think green stimulus is probably, you know, some more coordinated policy on that kind of, seems that it's acceptable for everybody. So let's talk about FX then. So how do you see the market play out? Is there any opportunities? I actually think, I kind of think the rates in FX are dead for now. And we're kind of range bound in FX. I'm I'm not a buyer of the dollar collapse story. But you know, there's a definitely a decent probability. So I'm not, you know, so I'm more of an observer right now. How do you think this plays out? Yeah, so in terms of uh, in terms of what we're very focused on now uh, is a little bit similar to, to sort of the flavor of your question, like, okay, is there a huge dollar trade to do right now? Uh, that's not my focus. I think my focus is that there is a global recovery. I have a, a, a high level of conviction that there'll be a pretty forceful recovery in Europe. So that's not something that I think consensus has shift in that direction, but it came from actually being very bearish. I think that can shift much further. Uh, so that's one aspect of it. I also believe that the emerging market recovery will happen. There will be a lag relative to the US and EU recovery, but it will happen. And I do think the vaccines will eventually take care of the very strain. So that's ironically sort of the epidemiology we have to embed in the macro these days, but that's an important macro question. And that means that it's going to be a global growth recovery. So, um, for example, Eastern Europe right now looks like an opportunity. It's been hammered because they had like nasty COVID waves in the last couple of months. Uh, But they're going to be essentially benefiting from the EU uh, recovery and the vaccine supply. So that's one opportunity that we see essentially Eastern European assets. Um, And then I think there's a tourism uh, and a, a tourism dynamic that can potentially also be played in um in uh, fx and you have to be a little bit precise right because if you had asked me in november we said okay the vaccines are here we're going to have global reopening um maybe in the first half of of this year right and and what we've learned is that the new strains make international travel much more complicated every government around the world is careful about importing new nasty strains right and therefore you're not going to just have a reckless reopening so if you scan around the world and look at the countries that have been just absolutely uh, decimated in terms of their tourism sectors being huge part of the economy and then being nothing except for some domestic tourism like thailand is the most uh, ex- extreme example uh, like even the balance of payments like huge huge flows there they're not going to be be fast but there are some pockets 
where you can see that tourism is really coming back. Uh, Mexico stands out. And it kind of makes sense, right? If the US is first in terms of really having a big part of their population vaccinated, it's easier to have a reopening because the large majority of tourists going to Mexico are US tourists, right? And it's already in the numbers. We have a lot of alternative data that we track for, for this purpose, other purposes, and it, it's actually very strong, right? So I think there's going to be a recovery there that's going to play out in terms of Mexican peso and so forth. And another one that's interesting is that uh, New Zealand has been very successful in terms of containing their uh, COVID and they, it, it, it sort of made sense, okay, they're going to be very careful about importing new strains, uh, but they did announce that they're going to open towards Australian uh, travel on, uh, on May 9th, excuse me, April 19th. And um, that could be a big thing, right? Because this goes back to the, like, the demand equation. We've had like a, a year now where people just couldn't, <laughs> couldn't do the stuff that they wanted, right? So now Australians are going to be able to, to, to go to New Zealand. It would not surprise me at all if that travel is going to uh, bounce back to way more than 100%. Like it's going to not only fully recover, but since Australians cannot do anything else in terms of travel, that can go way above the benchmark from 2019. So that there's some specific stories around global recovery. And um, on the big dollar question, like we, we get this, this question all the time, okay, so which historical comparison are we going to use? This is going to be 18, 17, <laughs> 2002, 80s. Like I've studied all these cycles. I don't think there's any very good example, right? So what do you do then? It's almost like you have to do theory uh, because you kind of have to go back to the concept. So I would say uh, there's, there's three concepts that are kind of clashing a, a little bit with each other here. Uh, the first concept that I think is just absolutely crucial for the dollar direction, and I think empirically you, you can show it, like any way we crunch the data, it shows the same thing. Global growth, the cycles around global growth are more important to the U.S. dollar than U.S. specific policy. So we've had many of examples of it. 2017 is a good example. Right? The Fed was early in terms of communicating tightening. But global recovery was also kicking in in 17, and the dollar went down dramatically. Uh, so I think that's a lesson you want to have in the back of your head. You want, don't want to just only stare at where the U.S. yield curve is positioned to try to trade the dollar. And that, that was the lesson from, from last year. But clearly, uh, it doesn't mean that interest rates are irrelevant, right? If you have a month where U.S. interest rates move in a massive way, for a period of time, they could disable that other force. But what tends to be the case is that the global growth cycle tends to be long-lasting, so it can be a force that lasts for like maybe a couple of years, whereas the spikes in U.S. interest rates tend to be something that is more concentrated over a couple of months. And perhaps what we've seen in, in Q1 was exactly that. The other thing I would say in terms of global interest rates is that uh, European interest rates have really not moved very much. And I think even though I agree with your very structural point that it's going to be hard to see European interest rates move a ton, I do think they're going to move some as we have this reopening kicking in in the next couple of months. So uh, I think from a short-term perspective, probably the euro had its bottom here in the last couple of weeks and it's going to try to trade higher. Um, and... Uh, 
yeah, that's related to a lot of the dynamics we already discussed. So overall, gun to your head, do you think that the dollar continues lower and this has just been a correction or it's for a while and clarify well how do you think it played because the dollar is so important to all of this yeah. obviously it's important to emerging markets important to commodities everything yeah i can certainly imagine that we have a little bit of repeat of q1 where we had one uh, one or two uh, fast rate spikes in the us and the dollar derives some benefit but we take a step back and think about what's the trend here for the next year or two, uh, I think the global growth variable will be the most important variable and it's going to trend high in terms of global growth and that tends to be dollar negative. So that's so you don't buy into the dollar smile story. Um, I, I think we've already seen very, very strong US growth sentiment, right? So this notion that that can support the dollar, in a way it's played into the price action. But I think again, why is this cycle different from past cycles? The, the difference is that even if we're looking at, let's call it seven, 8% growth in the US this year, we really have no conviction that the Fed is gonna to respond to that quickly, right? So the 10 year might be moving, but the short end, we're discussing whether we're going to have negative interest rates in the U.S. in the short end, right, because of the extra liquidity injection. So the short end is massively anchored. And I think also, like, EM is, is a huge dollar versus EM is a huge uh, question mark in this context, right? So there's lots of people talk about taper tantrum. Uh, EM is going to, like, uh, pass away uh, and, and be totally annihilated by this. But really, if you look at it, we've had some volatility in EM. But there's a lot of EM currencies that really have, have barely been damaged by this, like the Mexican peso have been up and down, but the level is not very different from where we were two, three months ago. South African rand is, is really at the, almost the strongest level, right? So it's not been a taper tantrum. And it's because like when you look at the yield curve, it matters a great deal whether it's the long end or the short end that's moving. Like everybody who's ever had to hedge a currency position, no, okay. When if it costs you two year two percent a year to hedge, you're gonna think uh, another time before you put on the hedge, right? If you really have to pay for it, it's still pretty much free uh, to 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 hedge any U.S. asset you own, and that's really important. So to to answer your question, I think the broad trend in the U.S. dollar is probably likely to be lower. I think these uh, spikes in U.S. yields can create opportunities to get better entry points for that trend. And then the other thing I would point out is that uh, it used to be fa fashionable to talk about twin deficits, right? We absolutely have twin deficits in the U.S. Even though the U.S. has become more energy independent than in the past, just the deficit on the manufacturing imports is now uh, really expanding rapidly. And uh, it tends to be the changes in these external balances that are relevant for how uh, currencies trade. We came from a 2% of GDP current account deficit in the US uh, before the COVID shock. It went to roughly 3% last year. 4 to 5% this year is the right range of forecast. This is a pretty big move from 2% to 4, 4 to 5% in a, in a short period of time. That's going to be an ongoing drag on the dollar. You really need to have just all the capital flow, which is what we look at uh, every day. And, and, uh, and um, essentially our clients um, um, yeah, uh, 
look at all that specific data, foreign direct investment, equity portfolio flows, and so forth. That just needs to be massively strong to offset that under underlying trend need uh, to generate FX to pay for the imports. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. And the flip side of that, what is the outperformer then? Is it EM? Is it, and where in EM is it LATAM or is it Asia? Or is it Europe? Or is it Europe? You know, is it the other G7 non-US? I think you're going to have a two-step uh, process here. Initially, I think the positive surprise is going to come out of Europe. Uh, so in terms of European currencies, like sterling has already kind of had a move. So uh, what often happens is that the euro moves and then all the peripheral uh, European currencies kind of become high beta versions of the euro. Like so from Sweden to Poland, like these peripheral currencies uh, tend to give you a bit of extra juice rather than the euro. So I think that's what's happening right now. Uh, so that would be phase one. And then I think there's a phase two where once we get to the point where uh, the EM recovery is looking more clear, uh, they get the vaccine supply that we don't need anymore in the EU and the US in the second half, then I think that EM recovery uh, will be forced for a third. So I think there'll be an EM leg to this, this dollar move as well. And any particular EM outside of Mexico that you know interests you right now that you think, you know, that maybe not right now, but you know, later in the year that you think, you know, I'd quite like to focus on that because I think there's some opportunity. Yeah, and I do think the Mexican story is interesting. Then in Latam, there's like Chile is always very leveraged to global growth uh, given this export uh, piece. And then um, a lot will depend on like, uh, for example, India, right? So we clearly have some serious challenges now in India, right? So a lot will depend on the entry point there. If we have uh, a period of weakness here, if that gets uh, pronounced enough, there'll be some value created there. And then you can have a turning point as they get their vaccine rollout uh, in order and, uh, and get that wave under control, uh, hopefully soon. And finally, view on the equity markets overall. It sounds like you have to be constructive considering, but there's probably some nuance because of maybe the taxation policies. How, how are you thinking through the equity market opportunities? Yeah, no, so I think it's, it's uh, even though it's, it's, it's tempting to look at valuations that uh, we come too far, uh, that generally is not a good way to trade equities. You need to have a catalyst for a sell-off to play it out. And I think uh, in coming months, we'll still be in a process where Maybe U.S. growth expectations have already been revised up, but the other growth expectations, Europe in particular, will be revised up. So that should be support of those equity markets. And then I think the point um, you are, are stressing around taxation is important. Could we get to a point where it actually becomes consensus that we're going to have some corporate tax increases in the U.S. so that the structural outperformance of US stocks relative to global stocks is, is in question because of that. Uh, I think that's a, it's a very potent catalyst in the sense that when we had the tax cuts in the US, it was clearly a catalyst for outperformance of US stocks for a multi-month period. If we actually reverse it, it will be logical that the markets take that into account. Uh, by the way, that could be important for the dollar as well, right? Because I think one of the reasons why the dollar uh, was very uh, supported uh, in 
in the first quarter, despite some of the structural negatives, it was that there was a very strong bid for U.S. risk assets, both portfolio equity securities, also foreign direct investment type uh, investments. Uh, and uh, if the tax situation, the uncertainty about the tax rates for U.S. corporates comes into play, uh, then perhaps that would generate more of a push into global risk assets, i.e. global equities. So uh, that's probably where we would focus. But obviously, there's some of the places where investors have been looking like Chinese tech and so forth, where there's some micro issues that are very important. But from a big macro perspective, the global growth stocks and the global reopening stocks, I think, still have, have more to go, even though that trend has come pretty far in the US. So final, final question. What's the best quality trade in the world right now that you see? I, it's actually, I, it's actually quite a hard question right now because things have moved a lot. It's a, and it's... It, it is. So I think there's some of these selective reopening trades that I mentioned. There's some places where tourism is really going to have, have a big move. Uh, I like those. And then, um, yeah, I would say the big, the big theme uh, that we have uh, with, with institutional investors is really like, how do you substitute your bonds for something else? And it's, what are they... I need to ask you, what, what is the consensus? What are they thinking of to substitute their bond portfolio with? It's, it is a diversified approach, right? You can't just go and buy tech stocks. Uh, so that's not going to work from a risk management perspective. Uh, but uh, there are clearly uh, pockets of additional currency exposures. There are pockets of, of real estate, some other kind of fixed income-like assets. Uh, and uh, like there certainly is an increasing debate, even amongst the very large institutional investors, whether there's a crypto digital currency element that could come in and play a role. Uh, I don't think that process is particularly far progressed in terms of actual flow, uh, but it's certainly featuring in the discussion. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, I know we were discussing on Twitter what is happening to gold. I think actually that gold is the one asset that potentially is hurt by by the, the crypto debate, right? Because that was sort of the the previous limited supply asset that was in favor, right? And that is now really getting competition uh, from the crypto space. Yeah, fascinating to see that. Does does the, the the lack of attractiveness of bonds also include the credit market? And does that have a knock-on effect for, for corporations to raise capital going out a year or so? because institutions are less interested in bonds per se. So that, that's interesting. So we, we've had a lot of volatility in fixed income uh, in, in the first quarter, as we've discussed. And um, really, if you look at the, the corporate bond market, it's been incredibly stable. Like if you look at spreads, right, like you can barely see the volatility. And I think this is, this is really important to policy. Like we had a couple of tense, we, tense weeks, right, where the US yield curve moved a lot and a lot of professional investors thought, okay, it's moved so much that the Fed will have to do something. But then you looked at credit and it just looked like, okay, there was nothing going on. Like, and, and, and typically it's when the financial conditions tightening spills into credit. That's when the Fed gets really concerned. So I think uh, so far we've had almost no hiccup in credit. And um, uh, that's part of the reason why the, the Fed has been showing a very steady hand. There's been no reason for them to panic in terms of their communication. 
Uh, so I think from a market perspective, we are at uh, extremely low levels of spreads, right? There's, 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 uh, very but why, but why even bother investing in credit? I mean, the yeah. point is, is you get no pickup at all. I think, I think, uh, I think that part of the market is is lulled into a sense of okay, volatility is so low, and even in Q1, it was so low that it didn't really hurt me. So I think it, it needs to have a spike in volatility, and then there could be some reassessment there. But uh, I think I think that's a very good point that if we see finally some kind of reassessment around credit like you have seen around government bond, you could see a much bigger source of flow pressure on the overall fixed income spectrum than you've seen so far, because that's something that has not played out at all yet. Like we track these indicators on a day-to-day basis, and there was essentially almost no outflows from IG credit, despite the volatility in the bond market overall. And um, uh, that that looks good now, but at some point it's going to be a, a, essentially a sort of complacency factor that's going to co- go the other way. I think. Fascinating. Well, let's see how this this year plays out, right? So it's going to be a hell of a year, and <clears throat> you know some things will play out, some things will be complete surprises as ever. But I tell you, it's, it's an interesting time to be in the markets. There's a lot of macro trends that you can feel on your body, right? Because can you go to the restaurant? Can you go and do this? So we're, we're living. We're living the macro environment this year for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, it's great to see you. Thanks so much for uh, chatting with me. And uh, yeah, we'll see how it plays out. Thanks so much. All right. Take care. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.